In Psalm 139 and verse 14, the great psalmist of Israel, David, writes, that I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The human body is a marvelous, marvelous system, complex system, that the Lord God had created, has created. You just take a little bit of time to contemplate all the various parts and the way they interact with each other and the ability to heal and, and um, the ability to interact with our environment through the five senses that the Lord has given and so forth. It's really quite a, a very remarkable thing. You consider it. And in fact, I believe that a serious contemplation of the human body inevitably should lead one to seek the designer of such a great thing, and that is the Lord God himself. This past weekend, I had to go and have my eyes examined, you know, just to get my glasses prescription renewed so that I can see you in the back row when you're sleeping. Right now you're safe, but when I get the new glasses, look out. But, uh, you know, it's really quite a remarkable thing to even just to go for a simple eye exam. They have these machines now that they look and take a picture of your retina and you can see all of this uh, stuff and so forth. And, you know, many, many years ago, those of you who know me well, I suffered a sports injury more than almost five decades ago. And um, I always thought I had a certain scar on my retina. And uh, once they were able to look at it, they said, no, there's no scar there which is really kind of an amazing thing. So either I never did have one or the Lord somehow removed it, but in the process, my eyesight is still uh, damaged. So that didn't go away. But anyway, just the, the remarkableness of the look into the retina of the human eye is really quite an amazing thing. And just thinking about eyes, I, I think about the eyelid. So again, what a marvelous thing that is, that the Lord has given us eyelids that will close and shield and protect our eye and we don't even have to think about it. It just happens. If something comes towards your eye, boom, your eyelid closes and the eye is, is shielded and protected. And, and God has just designed us uh, to be like that. And, and that's pretty incredible. Another way that God um, protects and shields us is through uh, what is called the gag reflex. The gag reflex is actually another gift from God. It's another way that God protects our body and what is a gag reflex? Well, I wanted to get an official definition of it, so I actually looked it up, even though I'm sure we could all you know, kind of give a definition of it. But here it is, uh, officially. A, ga a gag reflex is a reflex action. So that, again, means it's not something you think about doing. It's like blinking when something comes out your eye. It just happens. It just happens without having to give it any consideration. It's a reflex action in which the muscles of the throat contract so as to cause retching, that's a nice word, huh? To cause retching, typically triggered by something touching the back of the mouth. That reflex action, of course, can be brought on by uh, things like tongue depressors, right? It can be brought on by dental tools. It can even be brought on by a finger, 
Right? When kids are young, they discover their ability to put a finger in their mouth and cause themselves to gag. Right? That's sort of a child's game. It can also be caused by unpleasant food textures or flavors. Right? As a parent, I know the joys of children who who gag when they have been given a certain food to eat. And there's nothing wrong with the food. Uh, they just gag when it goes into their mouth. Quite a, quite a joyful occasion as a parent. Right? I had a child who gagged on a McDonald's hamburger. And I thought I was doing a good thing. Right? When the gag reflex takes over, we, we are physically unable to swallow in that moment. When that event happens, whatever is in our mouth, we we cannot swallow it. And in fact, it it involuntarily just comes right back out, right? There's just the overwhelming urge to to spit out whatever it is that's in our mouth, whatever is causing this this gagging reflex. And it's my hope, here it is, it's my hope this morning that the Lord God, by His Word, through his spirit would cause you and I to develop a spiritual gag reflex. A spiritual gag reflex, and in particular, a spiritual gag reflex when it comes to the topic of ungodly speech. When it comes to the topic of ungodly speech. In other words, that without even having to think about it, that before ungodly words can come out of our mouths, we, as it were, wretch... And we're unable to do so. That we gag over them rather than spew them out all over the place. Beloved, much harm, much harm is done to God's church through ungodly speech. Through ungodly speech. In fact, I would say possibly that in the realm of of community sins, ungodly speech probably causes more harm to God's church and any other community sin. It is not a small matter at all. With our mouths, we can build up, and with our mouths, we can tear down. So the, the form of speech that comes out of my mouth and yours is a very, very significant issue. James, in, in speaking on such things, and in particular talking about the tongue, He writes in James chapter 3 and verse 8, he says, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out From the same opening, both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And in particular this morning, we will consider verse 29. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, developing a spiritual gag reflex. 
developing a spiritual gag reset reflex. Verse 29 is another example of Paul's put-off, put-on process of spiritual growth. We have been looking at it over and over and over again in this section of chapter 4 because Paul provides a number of examples of it, and he focuses on some of the sins, some of the community sins that can really wreak havoc in a local church. And so as we look at verse 29, Here this morning together, we're going to see the put-off, put-on process of spiritual growth, and we'll do that so that we might tame the tongue as well, that we might be able to tame the tongue. Paul says, first off, very simple, put off sins of the tongue. Put off sins of the tongue. Speech, human speech, is a gift of God. It's really quite an amazing thing if you contemplate it for a moment. We are uniquely gifted by God among the entire creation with the ability to conduct intelligible speech, to communicate abstract ideas and thoughts, to pass on generationally knowledge, and to do so through speech. The ability to speak is part of what it means to be made in the likeness of God. In the likeness of God, it it is a way in which we emulate God. For God himself speaks. And had had he not spoken to us, of course, we would have no idea as to how to rightly know him. So speech itself is is part for us, part of what it means to be made in the image of God. and And it separates us from all the rest of creation. It's an amazing gift And because it's such an amazing gift, it's a gift of great importance. And it's a gift that God cares a lot about. That God takes an active interest in how we utilize our speech. The gift of speech. And so the Apostle Paul says here in verse 29, Put off sins of the tongue. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. This is Paul's command here to these Ephesian Christians and by application to us. And it's simply this. Get control of your tongue. Get control of your tongue. Let no unwholesome word, he says, proceed from your mouth. This Greek word, sapros, that's translated in the New American Standard as unwholesome, could also legitimately be translated corrupt. Let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth. It could also be translated putrid. Let no putrid word proceed from your mouth. It could also be translated as bad quality. Let no, no word of bad quality come from your lips. The word is common in in Greek, and it's used in a number of ways. It was used to speak of rotted wood. The rotted wood was spoken of by this this word, sapros. It also referred to diseased lungs, diseased lungs. It also spoke of withered flowers, withered flowers. You know, it's sufficiently beyond Valentine's Day, guys, that uh, the flowers 
They're just not making it, right? They're all dried up, shriveled, withered, good for nothing to be thrown out. They are sapros. Sapros, which means that we need to go get some more. Right, ladies? Get some more. My strategy, by the way, on this is to buy cheap and buy often. My problem is I only buy cheap. I struggle with the often parts. (laughs) But it is a strategy. It is a strategy. In the Gospels, Jesus uh, uses this word sapros a couple of times. A couple of times. In in, uh, chapter 13 and verse 48, he uses it to, to refer to worthless fish. Worthless fish in that particular um, parable there, the fish are brought in and they're separated and the good ones are kept and the sapros, the worthless fish, are discarded. They're thrown away. He also uses it in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 43 to speak of rotten fruit. Rotten fruit. And again, the idea is that rotten fruit has no value. It's to be just be discarded. And the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 4.29 is using the word um, metaphorically. He's using it metaphorically, and he's using it to refer to speech that brings damage. Speech that brings damage to, to other Christians and, by extension, to the local community of believers. That is speech that is sapros. It is putrid. Putrid speech has a way of contaminating. It has a way of contaminating the body and causing uh, rottenness to spread within a local congregation. You've heard the expression, no doubt, one bad apple uh, spoils the bunch or spoils the barrel. And it was the idea that in the old days, in the sailing days, if they had a barrel of fruit for the sailors, if one of the apples were to, to be rotted, then that rot is, a, is contagious, as it were, and it moves from fruit to fruit to fruit, and eventually the whole barrel itself is worthless and good only to be thrown out. That's the idea behind that which is sapros. It is, it is corrupting in its nature. Beyond that, our unwholesome speech um, gives off, a, like rotten fruit a, a, and bad fish, a, a really unpleasant aroma, kind of a nasty smell comes to it, right? You can walk into a, into a home, your own home even, if there's a fruit dish and a piece of fruit goes bad, it doesn't take long before that, that scent just permeates the entire household. And they say, what do guests and fish have in common? After three days, they both begin to stink, right? They both begin to stink. So bad fish gives off a really bad aroma. And unwholesome speech does the same thing. It does the same thing. It, it pollutes the environment. It's contagious within the environment, and it, and it creates an aroma within a local church that someone walking in from the outside goes, it doesn't smell good in here. It's just got a bad smell to the place. Well, what is the unwholesome speech that we are supposed to put off? What is it that Paul would have us put off? What is unwholesome speech? Well, there's no single singular definition of what unwholesome speech is. It's a, it's a wide variety of speech. A wide variety of speech could be considered sapros, rotten, putrid, corrupt, unwholesome. It is this. It is, it is any speech that works against the building up of the body of Christ. 
It is any speech that works against the building up of the body of Christ. This is the unwholesome speech. This is the corrupt speech. Let me give you some illustrations. Some illustrations. It could be cutting or demeaning remarks. It could be the use of cutting or demeaning remarks in reference to another individual. It could be things as, as simple as, as putting monikers on people. You know, there's so-and-so, he's uh, stupid, or he's lazy, or, or slow, or, or good for nothing, or an embarrassment, or something like that. It's, it's any kind of remark like that that, that cuts another individual down, that, that demeans another individual. That would be sapros. That would be corrupt speech. And Paul says we're to take no part of that. We're to have no part of that. It could be things like insults and put-downs. Insults and put-downs. I think about this in particular among the young of the church. So to, to call out a particular body type or characteristic and, and then to insult someone over it. Oh, so-and-so, they're ugly, or, or they're fat, or they're skinny, or, or they're a weakling, or whatever it is that can be used that way to, to really insult someone or, or, to, or to put them down. That is, that is sapros. That is corrupt speech. And by the way, to, to speak like that and to say, ah, oh, just kidding, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't justify it and it doesn't make it go away. You can't, you can't get out from underneath, underneath this by, by using your tongue in a corrupt way and then say, ah, oh, I was just kidding. Can you take a joke? No, that's not a joke and that's not funny. That tears people down. So insults, put downs, Sapros, corrupt speech. Making people the butt of a joke. Making people the butt of a joke is, a, is corrupting speech. It defiles the community. It separates the, the intimacy and the unity of a community of believers. And we've all had the experience, I'm sure, of, of sort of walking up towards a crowd. They're there, and, you, and just as you get close to them, they all burst out laughing. Right? Now, they probably weren't laughing at you or, or anything else, but, but there's a certain feeling you get like, whoa, I'm, I'm, I have been excluded here. And, and there's a feeling of, self con or a, of a self-consciousness and so forth that goes with that. And so just, you know, making a joke or someone into a joke is a corrupting kind of speech. There's no place for it. There's no place for it in a home, and there's no place for it in the family of God. Another kind of corrupting speech can be the inappropriate use of sarcasm. The inappropriate use of sarcasm. Sarcasm has a place. There are times when, when God the Father is sarcastic. There are times when the Son of God, the, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, uses sarcasm. But I think if you trace them carefully, what you will find is their use of sarcasm is in reference to those who are the rebellious, those who have set themselves against God, he will then use sarcasm with them to, to mock them in their impotence. So sarcasm, when it's used biblically, it's used against those who really are the kind of the enemies of God. And so often we use sarcasm in a way with our own friends or, or with those we love. And, and the tongue can be really, really sharp. And sarcasm can be really, really painful to be on the receiving end of it. 
Because often in the use of sarcasm, when you and I use it, it's a thinly veiled insult covered up with sarcasm, as if that's okay. So the use of inappropriate use of sarcasm is another form of corrupting speech that can really cut into the unity of the body of Christ. Certainly ethnic slurs. There is no place for ethnic slurs or ethnic jokes among the people of God. The Apostle Paul has labored away here earlier, right, in in chapter 2 to speak about the fact that the, the barrier that had separated Jew and Gentile has been collapsed in Jesus Christ. And as the one new man, we have unlimited and unhindered access to the very throne room of God and the very presence of God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying all of that has been collapsed, and so therefore there is no place. There is no place for the ethnic slurs that can often be heard even among the people of God. Even among the people of God. That belongs to the old man. That belongs to the pre-conversion man. The idea of, of, of speaking in a, in a demeaning way towards someone because of their ethnicity or, or crafting a joke in which their ethnicity is the punchline for the joke. These things are destructive. They're very destructive. And they are, again, there's no place for them. They are part of the sins of the tongue. I think about words of criticism. Words of criticism and complaint. These can be sapros. These can be corrupting speech. These can be putrid kind of speech. When, our, when we use our tongue to criticize the people of God or the leadership among the people of God, nothing wore Moses down more than the constant complaining and criticism of the people of God in, in, as he tried to lead them there in the wilderness. It nearly killed the man. And so the use of our tongue in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that is just critical of other people and, and always complaining and never satisfied with anything, never, it's never good enough and, it's, and so forth, that is, a, that is a corrupting form of speech. And it's a destructive, it's a destructive form of speech. Beloved, we can also speak in a corrupting, destructive, putrid kind of way when we insensitively use Bible truth. When we are insensitive in our use of Bible truth. That can be putrid speech. That can be speech that tears down. You think, well, wait a minute, I'm using the Bible, and and I'm speaking the truth of the Bible, so how can that possibly be something that would, would tear down the unity of the church, tear down the individual believers? Well, the answer is that it's inappropriate in the way that you use it. Think with me about Job's counselors. Hmm? Just contemplate Job's counselors. As you go through their counsel, what you find is that there are, there are snippets of truth about God that are, that are there in their counsel to him. But their words to Job don't in any way benefit the man. They don't, they don't build the man up. They tear the man down. They bring him to the end of himself. They are rotten. They are putrid. They are corrupt. And in the end, they are rebuked by God. For they said, they have not spoken rightly about me. They have not spoken rightly about me. We can inadvertently slip into this kind of unwholesome speech ourselves. A a classic illustration would be the, the misuse or the inappropriate 
ill-advised, ill-timed use of Romans 8.28. Right? Romans 8.28. All things work together for good, right? All things work together for good. And so there's someone who is suffering, and we come along and we hit them upside of the head with, hey, all things work together for good. As if that solves their problem, as as if that's going to minister to their hurting heart. That kind of speech can be putrid, even though it's true, when it's used improperly, when it's used insensitively, when it's used at the wrong time. There's definitely a place for it. But the place may not be standing next to an open grave with a loved one who's being laid to rest. So in all of these ways, and many more, Many more. We can be unwholesome in the way we speak. And Paul would have us to have none of it, to have none of it. This kind of speech cuts into relationships. It damages unity, and it damages unity in the local church, and it damages family unity, family unity. This kind of speech within the walls of your home will tear your family down. It will tear your family down. Down. There is no place for it. There is no place for it. And the home is the microcosm where we learn how to live out our Christian faith. So moms and dads, please, don't conduct, don't conduct your affairs in this way and don't allow your children to speak to one another in these ways. God would have no part of it. We need to gag. <laughs> we need to gag over this kind of speech. It needs to, it needs to be... So, such a strong aversion to this kind of speech that before the words can come out of our mouths, we and it doesn't even come. We don't speak that way. Put off, Paul says, the sins of the tongue. He goes on, and he says to put on a practice of building people up. Put off the sins of the tongue. Put off the unwholesome speech, the speech that tears people down, and instead substitute the practice of building people up. Building people up. Again, look at the verse. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. In the place of the putrid speech, Paul would have us use our tongues for the benefit of other people. He would would have us use our speech to build up other people. And notice, by the way, here, it's not an option, right? We are to speak only such a word. This is not an optional, you know, like Christians, they can take this option or leave it, you know. No, Paul says the only kind of speech that should be coming out of our mouths is the speech that builds up other believers, that it would benefit other people. If we speak, if we speak, if the mouth is opened and there's something coming out, then it ought to be building people up. And if it's, and if it's not building people up, then keep the lips closed, right? My mother used to say, if you don't have anything good to say, then don't say anything at all. It's amazing how mothers can encapsulate a lot of biblical truth in a short expression, right? If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Our speech, our tongues need to be building people up. Notice what Paul says here. He says it has to be good for edification. 
It has to be good for edification. It's a, it's a Greek word, and it comes from a, a root that talks about house, and it has the idea of building up a house. That's what it means to edify. It is to build something up. And that's what Paul is saying here, is that, that our speech, when we speak, it should be only speech, only words that build up other believers, that build up, consequently, the local body of Christ. One author, in commenting on all of this, he, he writes the following. He says, Christians are not allowed to say whatever we desire simply by rationalizing that we do not cuss or become coarse. In other words, people will kind of look at this and they'll say, well, Paul's only prohibiting here, you know, cuss words or, or, or being sort of coarse and inappropriate in our speech. And, and I would say no, because look at verse 4 of chapter 5 where Paul will directly tackle head-on filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, and so forth. He will get to this. So I don't think that's what he's primarily interested in here, is that kind of talk. He's interested in the multitude of other language and expression that tears down. But as the writer says here, uh, we're not allowed to say, just because I don't cuss, or just because I don't use coarse language, you know, that I can say whatever else I want. The apostle's standard, he says, is that if it does not build up and benefit, then it is not worthy to be said. There's not a neutral ground here. There's not a, there's not a safe spot between the prohibited speech, right, and, and, and some sort of neutral. It's either the speech tears down or the speech builds up. And when you put it in that context, boy, then you really have to stop and think about, do I really need to say this? Is this going to be helpful in the moment when I say this? And it would do us all a lot of good to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Huh? To be slow to speak. This speech, notice he says, only a word that is good. That is good. That same word appeared back in verse 28, and it, and it carried the idea of beneficial back there, right? He says, uh, don't steal, right? Performing with his own hands what is good. The idea was that which is beneficial, that which will be a help to others. And it's the same idea here. That in the place of sapros, the place of the corrupted speech, we're to substitute beneficial speech. Beneficial speech. And, and Paul qualifies this beneficial speech in two ways here. He, he talks about its timing and he talks about its purpose. He talks about its timing and its purpose. Now, as to its timing, right, uh, which is good or beneficial for education according to the need of the moment. According to the need of the moment. He's talking about timing here. And what he's saying is that, that our, our speech needs to be appropriate for the moment, for the time. For the time. It should, it should match the needs of the person to whom we are speaking. Some speech is appropriate in that moment, some speech is not. We talked about the, the inappropriate use of Bible truth. It could be the wrong time, wrong place, and it's not going to build people up. So practically here, right? If, if someone is discouraged, if someone is discouraged and we are to speak to them, words that are beneficial to them, words that will help them in terms of our, our timing here, then we, then we need to encourage them, right? A person discouraged needs to be encouraged, and they need to be encouraged by, by pointing them to the mercy of God, to the mercy of God, to the care of God. So, for example, Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, 
Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. I just want to focus on encourage the faint-hearted. We can benefit. It's appropriate in the moment when someone is discouraged to bring words of encouragement to them. To bring words of encouragement. That's how we build them up. That's how we strengthen them. If they've fallen into sin, then we need to gently point them back to the gospel. This would be how we will build them up. This will be how we'll benefit them. And and we need to take care in doing it that we don't fall into sin ourselves by either becoming angry with them or being really hard-hearted towards them as they find themselves in sin. Again, Paul's words, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's the appropriateness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Okay, that's the appropriateness. Well, what about if they're stiff-necked? What about if someone is stiff-necked and and rebellious? Then we need to speak to them a a loving, godly word of rebuke. We need to to wrap it in that blanket of love and care that we would have one for another and we would expect them to have for us, but they need to be rebuked. And there is an appropriateness to that rebuke. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. There is a time and a place in order to rebuke someone, but to do so, in the words of Paul to to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, where there he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, right? Reprove, rebuke, exhort. And then notice he says, with great patience and instruction. So again, not a harshness to it, but with a patient, loving, caring concern, we need to rebuke someone. That would be appropriate as to the timing, as to the timing. So the speech needs to be according to the need of the moment. There's also the purpose of the speech. Paul talks about the purpose of the speech, where he says, so that it will give grace to those who hear. In other words, our speech needs to to give grace. It needs to be a conduit, a way that communicates grace to the person who is listening to us. It, It will build them up as it becomes the conduit of God's grace. And the concept of grace here that Paul is referring to is is the idea of conferring a benefit on someone, of providing an enablement to someone. We could even say, in a sense, to give strength to someone, right? Where he says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is beneficial to build them up according to the need of the moment, according to the appropriate timing, so that it will convey strength. To your listener, so that it will convey strength to them. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. There it says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. That's really not a good idea to be on the receiving end of that, right? But the tongue of the wise brings healing. It brings healing, it conveys strength to the person. Now, this can be through direct. Uh, a spoken gospel truth, an application of it, as we seek to give strength to others through our words, through our encouragement. I would say even through our gratitude, by expressing gratitude. 
is a way to give strength to the audience, to a, to a listener. What do I mean by that? Example. Well, you could say something like this to somebody who's struggling. You could say, you know, I know you're struggling right now, but, but I, I, I still see the evidences of God's grace in your life. See, what I, what I see is that, is that you've grown in this area. Yes, you're struggling, but you have grown. I, I've, I've watched you grow in this. Or, or I, I've, I've seen your self-control grow. You, you, don't, you don't fly off the handle. You don't give in to your impulses like you once did. You, you, are you where you need to be, where you want to be, where God would have you be? No, you're in still process here, but you've grown. And I can see it. And I can see it. I, I can see that, that you have a, a growing love for other people. There was a time when you couldn't care less about others. But, but what I see in you now is, is, is a love and concern for other people that, that enables you to open your mouth and speak the gospel to those around you. I see these evidences of grace in your life. This is a way to encourage someone. This is not a way to give strength to someone. This is a way to build them up, to edify them. Now, of course, it needs to be true when you say these things, right? You can't just go up to somebody, hey, you know, I see such and such in your life, and you're kind of blowing smoke up their nose. I mean, it's got to be true. It's got to be true. But listen, listen, I think that, that um, we tend to be really critical of each other, really critical of each other and really um, forgiving of our own selves, right? We, we tend to measure others with a yardstick with which we would not desire to be measured ourselves. And so we can fall into a more critical kind of way. And so it does take work. It is the work of the Spirit to, to be gracious with someone, to be encouraging to someone, even someone who's in the middle of failure, to come alongside them and to, and to seek to build them up in the truth. We need to train ourselves to see evidences of grace. Again, this is such perfect application inside the family, right? It's for the church, but it's, it's in the microcosm of the family first. Moms and dads, look for evidences of grace in the lives of your children and point it out to them. Don't let the only time they hear from you to be when you're criticizing them and, and picking at them for something. And when you, give, uh, you know, when you speak to them at evidence of grace, don't end it with a but. I see these things in you, but... Because when you do that, you've just swept everything else off the board. Just let it lay. Okay, let it lay. There's plenty of time to come back around and pick the, you know, the, the speck out of their eye. Okay? After you've gotten the log out of your own. Right? So, this is true in marriages. Husbands and wives, you pick at each other. Look for evidences of grace. And, and build one another up. Communicate that. And it's definitely true in the local church. Definitely true in the local church. Jesus said... And that the source of all our words, both wholesome and unwholesome, proceed from where? They come from the heart. They proceed out of the heart. And as followers of Christ, we have been given a new heart. We have been given a new heart. And so what that means is this new heart in which the Spirit of God resides is drawn to the things of God. And therefore, our mouths need to express the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul would have you and I think seriously about this, seriously about it, so that through his word and by his spirit, you and I develop a spiritual gag 
reflex. Let's pray. Our Father, there is so much more we could say on with regard to speech. It's such an important topic and it's so practical for all of us because we struggle in these things. James says, who can control his tongue? And Father, we confess that we often slip into corrupt and corrosive and putrid speech with one another. And we don't want to do that. We want to change, O oh Lord, and we pray that today would be a step on that road to change. Perhaps we've heard something this morning in a different way. Maybe, maybe just a light bulb has gone on for us, or, or maybe it's something we've been thinking about, and, and Father, it's just driven home more forcefully this morning. But Father, we pray for your help in this. We know we can't do it alone. We've got to walk in the Spirit here, O oh Lord, and we pray for his help. May you enable us individually to be people whose mouths build up others and not tear them down. Oh, Father, help us to grow in self-control. If we can't say something that builds them up, then, Lord, let us bite our tongue. But, Father, beyond that, let us grow in, in our hearts to really love people so that the words wouldn't even come into the back of our throat. Oh, Lord, give what you require. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.